My favorite part of the day was when I saw you, Amal. Uh, my favorite part of the day was getting in the cab with Sammy for the ride to the ring. It's 372 meters Whoa. away. Elevation. And we were walking downhill. Okay, so it's the post-draft edition of 32 Thoughts, the podcast, presented by the GMC Canyon AT4X. Merrick in Stouffville. Emil Delich and Elliot Friedman still in Nashville. They were there for day two. But really quickly, let me rewind to day one. And one of my highlights was after the draft, talked to someone at one of the teams at a table who said, I hope Elliot didn't get too close to the Arizona table or they might have asked him oh. to make a pick. Nice purple suit, oh, Elliot. Too close. <laughs> when I saw them come in. I was like, oh, no. Too close. I almost changed. You know how it is when two people wear the same dress to the prom? Yeah. I, I, I wanted to run up and change. Anyway, I thought that was funny. Um, we're going to do a lot on the draft. Elliot recorded a one-on-one with Jason Bukla. You'll hear that towards the end of today's podcast. Uh, we have news with a free agency on the horizon. We'll talk about Tyler Bertuzzi. Uh, we'll talk about you know Yamamoto and Costin to Detroit. We'll talk about Debrinkit. We'll talk about Pesci. But really first, let's talk about the draft and maybe most specifically day one, Elliot, where we thought there was going to be a lot of trades and quite the opposite happened. Oh. There were no trades. Big fat zero. First time Ooh. in 16 years. Although we yeah. did get some on, on day two. Yeah. Um, you know, I look, I think, um, you know, it was weird. I, you know, like there were some big trades obviously leading up the Dubois deal, the Taylor Hall deal with Nick Felino. I thought that was going to mean, okay, we're going to get more. You know, Ross Colton, Alex Newhook, here we go. There's a lot of players available. Players traded not for free, but for cap space, Jeff. Not for free. Thank you. Thank you. But for cap space. And it absolutely ground to a halt. Like the one thing I heard that was really interesting was that, so I heard that Boston out of nowhere asked for an interview on Wednesday, the day of the draft, with Oliver Moore. Hmm. So Oliver Moore was taken 19th overall by the Chicago Blackhawks. I think I'd written in my notes leading up, like the, I wrote a, a day of game blog on day one, and I said, I think Boston has one more move on them to clear space. And it was because I'd heard about that, that they had asked for a quick last second interview with a prospect that was going in the first round. I found out later it was Oliver Moore. And so I really thought, and I would bet if Boston did that, they thought they had something going too. Obviously it didn't happen. I heard the Bruins did try really hard to get into the first round. I know what you're going to say. You're going to ask me what was going out to get the Bruins first rounder. I, I don't know that. I really don't. Obviously I think they're very sensitive to some of their players They already know there's been enough rumors, and now we know, as we reported on Thursday night, that Tyler Bertuzzi is headed to the market on Saturday. But I thought more was going to happen, and I apologize for the false advertising that I gave that the first round of the draft would be a lot more active. This time of year, smoke mirrors, and sometimes the truth. Yes, false advertising. Better business bureau, but that bureau is useless anyway. They can't do anything. First of all, let's just get one thing out of the way here because we've talked so much about him already and everyone's had a chance to to have their thoughts on him. But what did you make of the Connor Bedard phenomenon in Nashville with Chicago? And with the first overall selection in the 2023 NHL draft, the Chicago Blackhawks are very proud to select from the Regina Pats, the Western Hockey League, Connor Bedard. Look, everybody knew he was going to be the number one pick. That guy is so much more of an adult than I was when I was 18 years old. 100%. You know, it is embarrassing for me when I think back and I think of myself at that age and I look at him at that age, it is embarrassing of how less of a person I was in terms of (laughs) maturity, emotional behavior at that age than he is. It really is incredible. Okay. One, let me pause on that. Cause one thing that I want to make sure that I get on this podcast, maybe you've had the same experience and this goes to not just Connor Bedard, but most specifically the family. I don't know how many people that I've spoken to this year who have had some type of 
minor hockey involvement with, maybe it's a friend played with Bedard at a tournament or on a team, or they shared some hockey situation, and the Bedard family always kept in touch, or at least dropped a note, or every now and then picked up the phone and made a call. Like it can be like they played together on the the brick team once upon a time in Edmonton and mom still calls, you know, Connor Bedard's mom or, or dad will still call or drop a note, you know, at least once a year. Like it just seems like this guy is from like the most healthy family and like generous and kind. You can see it in the kid. Like he's from like a really kind, thoughtful family that really cherishes important things. Like when he was on the set and, and he was talking about his grandpa and he pulled out the chip. Yeah, the poker chip. Yeah, very nice. Come on, man. Like, to your point about maturity. Connor, such a special moment for you and your family. I know they've made so many sacrifices to get you here. You're such a young, humble young man. How much are you thinking about your grandfather, um, you know, at this time, this special moment for you? Yeah, yeah. I got the little chip here. I don't know if I've shown you guys if you want to see. Oh, sure. But, we'd love to yeah. see it. Um, yeah, but I think that's it's obviously tough for me and my family not having him here. But uh, this little thing I got was... We love to play cards and stuff, and uh, I got him on here, so uh, just kind of having him with me, and um, you know, on this day, and you know, I'm sure he's he's watching. Garth is looking down at you. He's proud. We're all proud of you. And uh, yeah, I was nowhere close to that mature when I was his age, and I don't think anybody listening to this podcast was quite as mature. Anyway, I just wanted to make sure that I get that out. Like he comes from a very decent family, very decent person himself. Anyway, I, I think the top four of the draft unfolded exactly the way. I thought it was going to in terms of the players picked. Maybe that didn't happen in the order that we all thought. So we had said that it was very possible that Fantilli was not going to go second to the Ducks, mm-hmm. that Verbeek might throw a bit of a curveball, and he did. And after the draft was over, somebody told me that the moment that Anaheim finished second in in the lottery, that the word around the league was that, Verbeek preferred Carlson. Now, I don't think there was any confirmation bias there. I think he went through the process. They interviewed everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was Carlson 100% right there. But I think from what I heard later, his initial instinct, people believed, was Carlson. And there was nothing there that got him to change his mind. And so Carlson goes two, Fantilli goes three. You know, sometimes you wonder, is a player going to be upset? They quote-unquote dropped one spot. But after round one, I was walking back to our suite to get changed, and I happened to run into the Fantilli family, and they were beaming. Yeah, same. This was not a person or a family that was disappointed where they ended up. And I have to say, I really liked the picture of uh, Fantilli's tuxedo where he put the names of, oh. I think, 150 people that had helped him get there. Like, that's dynamite. But Fantilli was happy, and San Jose got their center. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Mark Shifley here in a few minutes and watching the four centers go one, two, three, four, and knowing how important that position is. Uh, I don't think anybody's surprised it went that way, and then things started to veer a little bit. Yeah, it really did. And it really veered with pick number six with Dmitry Shimishev. And we'll we'll get there in a second. One thing I want to say about Fantilli, because I I spoke to the family and both Adam and his his brother afterwards. And we were, you'll love this, Elliot. We were talking about the OHL Cup. Yes, we were talking about minor midget hockey. When Fantilli was playing with the Toronto Red Wings, they're playing in the final at uh, Madame Athletic Center against the Don Mills Flyers. And this is a team with Shane Wright and Brennan Othman and Brant Clark stacked team. And Fantilli was like a one-man wrecking crew. He almost single-handedly won that game. And his dad mentioned, yeah, and you remember it was overtime and the puck was laying in the Don Mills net and Adam dove at it and it just went wide or hit the post or something like that. And Adam's like, he still talks about that play even on my draft day, <laughs> dad still brings it up. It is a great family. Not only is he a wonderful kid, Fantilli, mm-hmm. but we talk about right now the opening of personalities in the NHL and encouraging more personalities in the NHL. You know, there used to be a, an old dojo saying that really rang true for hockey, which is the protruding nail gets hammered down. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it used to be in hockey for the longest time. But now in the era where players are encouraged you know, not just to have their personality, but feel comfortable showing it as well. 
I think this guy's going to be great for the Columbus Blue Jackets. I really do. Really outgoing, enthusiastic, all of it. I think this is a this is a great pick for Columbus. Well, I don't have a lot of old dojo sayings, Jeff, but I <laughs> I, I would agree with you on that. I th- I think you're right. The protruding nail gets hammered down. And then there were two places where the draft kind of changed a bit, I thought, early. Or actually, I should say three. One was Anaheim because they had the slight swerve. The second was Montreal. And the third was Arizona. And we'll talk about that with Jason Bukula in the interview you mentioned. You know, I just wanted to talk about Carey Price for a second. Yeah. If there's one thing about media I don't like, and I want to stress this, I don't think I'm any better than anybody else. I recognize I'm not perfect and I make a lot of mistakes myself, but if there's one thing I don't like about media as a whole is how much we contribute to pylons. I really don't like it. I've been there. I've been in the eye of that storm. Mm. And I'm not just talking about hockey media. It's everywhere. I I think we as an industry are very guilty of that. We make pylons worse. And I don't know why. I don't know if people feel pressure to join in, to add their opinion to something. I don't like it. And uh, uh, like I said, it's not just hockey or sports media. I think it's media in general. You know, Carey Price. We planned it that way. David Reinbacker. Reinbacher. Like, I saw him coming off the stage. He walked off right next to me because that was the way people had to go. Yeah. Um, and he was really shaken. And, um, you know, the one thing I'll say about this was when he walked off the stage and he was really shaken, there was a young girl who walked down the stairs because I was, my spot was right next to the Ottawa table on Wednesday night, which was right by where the boards would be. So I was basically right next to the stands. And there was a set of stairs coming down from the stands to the ice level. And a young girl walked down and she goes, uh, Carrie, can I take a picture? And his mind was not in a good place in that moment. And he absolutely did it. And I thought it was really something that in a moment where he was really down, he saw this young fan who wanted a picture with him. And there was never a question in his mind that he was going to take that picture. He did. And, you know, he, he looked at me and he just said, like, I don't know what happened to me up there. I, I just froze. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, Carrie, like, I blew a swim race once and... It crushed me for years, but other people got over it and moved past it a lot faster than I did. So just remember that. Like, people will move on. This will be a thing for 15 minutes, and then people will move on. But, you know, like, I saw a lot of the tweets, and if there's one thing I could really change about the world, it's like, uh, actually, there's going to be a lot of things I would change about the world. <laughs> but, you know, if there's, if there's one thing. I was going to say, there'd be probably more than this one, LA. <laughs> I, I just wish we weren't, as an industry, so quick to pile on people. In my job, sometimes I have to deliver criticism. I always don't like it, but I try to be measured because I've been on the receiving end of it. And I was actually treated pretty well by a lot of people when that happened. But the people who treated me the worst were like media members who didn't know me, like international media and things like that. And I've always been very mindful of that. Mm. And uh, I don't know, I didn't like that in the moment. My ex, you know, messed up an anthem uh, at, a, at a sporting event once as well. And she heard it and it was gross. And I really hated it too and felt awful for her. I know exactly what you mean. Then I went on the stage and uh, Carrie Price came to me. He's like, yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, I was I like, he got nervous too. I was like, yeah, no problem, I guess. You got to look up, <laughs> you gotta look up to, to such a great guy. I yeah. was stunning to shake his hand. Yeah, I'm very thankful for that. I feel the same way. I felt so awful for Price watching him. And my only thought was like, I feel so bad for this guy. I want him to get through it. I was just like, can someone like just yell the name to him? Like just help him through this well i think i think what happens is is that it starts to happen and then if even if people help you you sometimes freeze and it just that happens sometimes like it's so let's just move on let's get to the next thing so montreal makes the pick which i i thought was a very defensible pick they hang on they needed a right shot defenseman everybody needs a right shot defenseman you look at a lot of their blue line prospects like starts with lane hudson like there's a lot of left shots there like they, they really needed a, a strong right-hand shot in the pipeline and, and they got it. Like we went in the draft thinking, okay, they need centers, they need goalies, and they need a right shot D. And right away, Ken Hughes 
took care of the right shot D. Yes, he he sure did. Uh, and then Arizona makes their pick, and again, Pukala, uh, we'll let him talk about it. And now, and now I want to talk about Matvey Mishkov because I, I had a chance to find out a lot more about this. With the uh, seventh, select, seventh selection of the draft, the Flyers are proud to select from St. Petersburg in the KHL, Matvey Mishkov. Shoot. So after Mishkov went to the Flyers, people started sending me a tweet from Sunday where the Flyers closed their practice facility. Hmm. And it also got out that the Flyers met with Mishkov face-to-face in Philadelphia. So people started sending me, and this is even people in the business. Even after I tweeted this on Wednesday night, some people on Thursday at the draft said they heard the same thing. And I said, well, I'm, I'm angry that you don't follow me on my Twitter feed because you would know this is not true. I'm very hurt. <laughs> but basically, it was closed on Sunday. So people are like, oh, that's when Mishkov met privately. And I asked Daniel Briere actually on camera, and he kind of laughed. He said, that's a complete coincidence. It wasn't that way. It was a couple days before. So last Friday, Mishkov was already in North America. So basically what happened was we talked about in a podcast a week and a half ago about how Mishkov had preferred teams in mind, and he wanted to go to one of those preferred teams. And that, we can now say, is true. It was absolutely 100% true. And what he'd indicated is he wanted to go to a team or a market where the team mattered, and it was a market where the team was popular, And he felt they had a chance to win. And a lot of us were talking about Washington, and that would certainly qualify. But another one he had identified was Philadelphia. Because it's the Flyers. They're popular in the market. I know people there haven't been happy with their ownership. But he saw it as very stable ownership that always spends money. And they're committed to winning. So he was intrigued by the Flyers. They were on his list. So because Philadelphia is not far from New York, where he came into North America, he agreed to make a side trip into Philadelphia on the Friday, and he met with a smaller group of Flyers management. The meeting went really well, and one of the interesting things I heard from the Flyers was, like, is this too good to be true? I think they wondered about it for a second. So they scheduled another meeting in Nashville where more Flyers staff could attend and they asked the people who came to that second meeting for the first time, are we misreading this? Is this kid putting us on or does he want to play for the Flyers? And apparently the people who were at the second meeting but not the first one said, you know what? This is for real. This kid wants to play here. So I think the Flyers were convinced And I think the kid was very honest about them. He was happy to go there. He wanted to go there. They're the kind of team he wanted to play for. Like Bill Armstrong of Arizona made it very clear that Mishkov didn't seem too interested in playing there. The reverse was the case in Philadelphia. Now, I think the Flyers tried to trade up, but at the end of the day, they didn't need to. Now, Jeff, you will appreciate this, Hmm. but when I told this story to a couple of people, you know what I got asked? They said, Mishkov loves the Flyers. Does he ever seen the highlights of the famous game, They're Going Home? Wow. Bob Cole. They are leaving the ice. They're going to go. The Soviets are leaving. They're going home. They're going home. Yeah, they're going home. Can you imagine? Denny, it's been a short afternoon. Oh, it's terrible. They're acting like a very frustrated hockey club. And I think they're displaying poor sportsmanship. Can you believe it, Dennis? I certainly can't believe it. I thought they'd have a little more pride in to play the game. In 72, in Moscow, we stayed and we took it all. And in 74, and now the Philadelphia Flyers roam around a little bit and they're going home. Well, Aggie Kuklowitz, who is... Ed Van Imp. Yes, and they leave the ice. Wow. And I actually asked someone who knows him, I said, has he seen this video? And they said they didn't know, and they promised to ask when they got a chance to do it. 
But I think the Flyers in the beginning were very surprised. Apparently, he walked in there and he was like, yes, I want to play. Like, nothing scared him. Not Philadelphia, not Tortorella, not the fact they're rebuilding. Like, he wanted to play in a place where it matters. Really quick, just so our, our, our listeners know the reference, Ed Van Imp was a, was a defenseman with the Philadelphia Flyers. And in a game in 1976, in early January, this was the Soviets facing off against the defending Stanley Cup champions. And like the prestige of the NHL was on the line. The Flyers were going to do whatever it took to win that game. And Van Imp was in the penalty box. I can't remember what the infraction was, but when he was released... He just charged at Valeri Harlamov and leveled him. And that's when Red Army said, yeah, you know what? That's it. We're leaving. We're taking off. Now, they came back and played, I think, after they were reminded that they wouldn't be paid um, <laughs> if they didn't play that game. But the Flyers ended up winning it. And that is one of the the most historic moments of hockey in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Ed, Ed Van Em taking that run at Valeri Harlamov was a... But I, I, I'm sorry, Jeff, I consider it a failure that I could not answer this question for you and the other people who asked me. I think Gord Stellick was one of the people, and I think Bob Stoffer was another because I did radio hits with them on That's Thursday. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about this, Elliot, is the Flyers got the player I thought Washington needed, and the Capitals got the player that I thought the Flyers needed, and Ryan Leonard. Like, I could not have been more wrong on this one, Elliot. It is kind of funny because you would think of Ryan Leonard and you would think Flyers. And the Capitals were ecstatic to get him. Flyers. Very happy to get him. But I think the Flyers were really blown away by this guy. And of course. I'll tell you this. I'll, the other thing, too, I think the Flyers were really excited about is in the moment. Like I was talking with them after the draft and Joe Civil, their uh, PR guy extraordinaire, like he knows the reaction online, right? But, you know, Briere doesn't know, and his stat, and Macaulay and those other guys, Brent Flyer, they don't know. And when I mentioned their fans were, like, ecstatic, and, and Civil said, yeah, they, they are, like, they were pumped. And the other thing, too, is I think Philly has been disappointed by how much of their business has gotten out. The fact that they kept this one under wraps, that was big for them. But the fact that their fans were ecstatic with the pick, that was very meaningful to them. Are there any other players or prospects on either day go that you want to talk about that aren't covered in the Jason Bukala interview a little bit later on? Like I, I, when the National Predators made the pick at 24 for Tanner Mollendyke, that was right after the Rangers took Gabe Perot. I think Nashville really was hoping that Gabe Perot was going to be there for him. Like I think that they love Mollendyke. Why not? There's, you know, Duncan Keith comparisons out there. But I think they really wanted Gabe Perot. Is there anything like that that you want to talk about? Not really. Rounds? You, you. I don't like doing winners and losers the draft because I don't really know these players. I hate those because who knows? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and most the vast majority of people that say a team won or lost a draft have no idea. Like the Sam Cosentinos and the Buclos of the world, they have an idea because they see all these guys. I have no idea, and a lot of people out there don't either. So, you know, I, there were a couple moments I thought the. You know, Tom Fitzgerald, the first captain of the Predators, trading that pick to David Poyle so Poyle could make one last pick as the GM of the Predators and the <coughs> and the standing ovation uh, happened. I thought that was a really great moment. And the other one I like, too, it happens every year. Like, Dustin Wolf was one of those guys. Yeah. Waited all day long and got taken late and got that celebration. But the very last pick, Tyler Peddle, it was a Vegas pick, traded to Columbus, and Tyler Peddle sat in the crowd for two days. Two days. Hmm. And he gets taken with the last pick. From Quebec Major Junior League, Drummondville, Tyler Peddle. That's a good yeah. That is a good I'm so happy for that guy. And he's here. How cool is that? Oh, yeah. Well, he was a projected guy early on in the year. I mean, he started with eight, eight goals in his first nine games with Drummondville a, a couple of years ago and then really had some difficulty finding that, uh, that touch after that. You see his dad, Brad, to his left there, head coach uh, of CIS hockey in the Atlantic Canada. And, man, that has got to be so such a relief 
to be sitting there. I thought he, I would thought he would. Like, that's a long day with your fam, long two days with your family. Oh, yeah. And to get that moment, you know, I'm glad someone got that moment. Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It is a historic announcement. Tennessee State University adding club level hockey to its athletic program starting next year. News Channel 5's Kelsey Gibbs found that fans are ready to cheer on the Tigers when they hit the ice. All right, Nathan, we'll skate for two more minutes. 11-year-old Nathan loves being on the ice. All right, getting ready to go back out there. It's important to rest so you don't injure yourself. His father, Ron Jackson, says Nathan, who's autistic, enjoys figure skating. Representation is important, and he's already excited about ice skating, so... If he saw people that looked like him playing hockey, then the sky is the limit. He might get that opportunity sooner rather than later. Tennessee State University is making history by becoming the first HBCU to offer men's ice hockey at the collegiate level. That's amazing. I'm very proud of my alma mater. I graduated from uh, Tennessee State University. Big blue. And uh, uh, they're just doing big things from the ALB, the aristocrat of bands, now hockey, so I could be more proud and I know they'll do great things. The team will begin as a club level program but aspires to achieve NCAA Division I status in the near future. Great job, Nathan. Hockey players and fans say this is an exciting opportunity. As we carry on here, and I do want to talk about the PWHPA PHF situation here in a couple of moments, uh, we did have some activity by way of trade. Kyler Yamamoto and Clem Costin go to the Detroit Red Wings for future considerations. Uh, do you have a quick thought on this one? The Oilers are tied to the cap. Like one thing they confirmed what I believed, and that is that Broberg is not getting traded. They said that Bouchard is a bridge deal, and 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 they so was, and they have to sign McLeod too. You know, I still think they're looking at the potential of Connor Brown. I think all things being equal, unless somebody really comes out with a great offer, I I think like I look at the favorites for Connor Brown as being Edmonton and Toronto, and somebody's going to have to beat that. Uh, but they needed cap room and. Um, you know, Costin, it was interesting hearing Steve Eiserman talk about it because he talked about a role for Costin, and then when he talked about Yamamoto, he said, you know, we'll see, we have to talk to the agent. Now, Friday is the last day to put people on waivers for buyouts or let people know you're buying them out. Yep. So we'll see. Like, the one thing that was really interesting you reported on th- on Wednesday was Nashville has nine RFAs, and they're only qualifying two. Yeah. I think there's, like, I mentioned Max Comtois earlier in the week. Mm-hmm. I've been told there's going to be a lot more free agents than re-realized, that there's going to be a bunch of guys who don't get QO'd. So I think this is going to be the one of the interesting storylines on Friday. Okay, a few more um, storylines that we're continuing to follow here. Um, you want to have a expanded thought on Tyler Bertuzzi and the Boston Bruins, or have you said everything that you want to say about that situation? I think they wanted to keep him. I think they really did, but I just heard as of Thursday night he was – he was going to the market. Like I said, you know, Boston was trying to get a first-round pick, and they couldn't. And, um, you know, like, you know, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. With the, but, again, Sweeney post-draft, he didn't sound optimistic on mm-hmm. signing any of his guys. You know, the, the two situations I, I want to talk about, you know, I've mentioned Ryan Reeves now. I think if he hits the market, I think Toronto is very much – in the picture here. Do you think one way or another that the Maple Leafs are going to get a slugger? Oh yeah. I I think they're going to get beefier and I don't think there's any doubt about that. I've heard the possibility of Jonathan quick being the Rangers backup behind Shesterkin. You know, George McPhee said on the NHL network coverage that they're close on getting the Aiden Hill done. You know, there's a lot of goalies out there. Some people said to me they wouldn't be surprised if Quick is a Ranger. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to talk about Debrinket. Like, we talked about Debrinket and our default yep. that it was Detroit. I don't think so anymore. Uh, there was a lot. As I was leaving the draft on Thursday, I was getting a lot of people telling me that they don't think it's going to work in Detroit. Is that because of the term? Someone just said, like, 
Like, you know what we talked about? That Iserman just gets to a point where he says, I'm not going any further. Mm-hmm. That's the sense I got, that he's hit that point and Ottawa just doesn't think it's a good enough deal. Like, unless something changes, definitely, and it wasn't just me. There were a few other people saying they don't think it's Detroit. That's stunning to me. Yeah. That is completely stunning to me. Yeah, it just doesn't appear to be a match. Now, I think Anaheim had looked in, but I was told not likely. I heard Anaheim was interested, though. I know the Islanders had checked in, and they've got room now. Like, the Islanders have room for a Tarasenko or a Dabrinkit or whatever they want to do there. After the Josh Bailey? Although I think they're still trying to get Mayfield signed, too, so... I think that's an interesting one. The Islanders do have some room now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've wondered about Washington, too. Can Dabrinkit and Ovechkin both work together on the power play? I mean, Ovechkin kind of has earned his spot from in Washington there, and it's kind of tough to displace him. Did, did I miss a rule change, yeah. by the way? Did I miss it? Are they going to have two pucks on the ice for power plays now? Is that how we're doing it? <laughs> but like, they, like that- people started to say to me, start looking in some new directions for Dabrinkit. I mean, I know about Dallas. But Dallas doesn't have a lot of room. But if but if somebody said to me like Jim Nill is a creative guy, if Jim Nill wants and the Dallas Stars want to bring it, hmm. they're gonna find out a way to do that. So that's one thing I wanted to mention. You know, Toronto. We mentioned Reeves. Brad Tree Living said the price on some of their current free agents was a little high. O'Reilly, Shen. I think there's competition for Shen. I think there's competition for O'Reilly. I'm really curious to see what Nashville is going to do down the middle. I think they have some interest potentially in a guy like Comfort, too. Like, I think Nashville's going to get centers. Hmm. Whether it's trade or free agency, I think they're going to do something. You know, the Leafs, Matthews, I don't think is signing this week, but I do think he'll be signed before the start of next season. The Willie Nylander thing. I just don't think it's close right now. I really don't. And... I think the Leafs are comfortable with Matthews. They know he's signing, and they know he'll be signed before next season. Like, the Nylander one, I don't know. And, you know, like we saw, the kid took it right to the deadline last time. And obviously, it's not going to be out. He's got a contract. Yeah. But he took it right to the deadline last time. Like, this is not... Oh, down to the minutes, man. <laughs> this is not a guy who has a history yeah. of backing down. Neither does his family nor his agent. So, True. and the Leafs, same way. Like, this is Tree Living and Shane Doan. And there's not a lot of shrinking violets in this one. When I left the draft on Thursday, all the only words I was hearing was not even close. So we'll see. Hmm. You know, the other one, too, that people were talking about was, uh, was Brett Pesci. The one thing people forget is that Pesci has, I think, a 15-team no-trade, and someone was telling me that some of the teams that are being guessed, they need his permission to do it. So I don't know where that stands, but I heard the contract talks weren't close, and I think the player was prepared to say, I'll play out the year, and we'll see how everybody feels about that. Uh, Winnipeg Jets, Mark Shifley. This will be the last one we talk about before we get to your story here. He's almost got a 6 a.m. flight, and he wants us to hurry up. He's giving me the yes. hand motions. <laughs> Almo, we're trying to entertain and inform the people here. I'm getting the death stare from Almo right now. I want to say this was a big week for the Jets. I love their pick, by the way. Yeah, I, I know you love Barlow. Colby and, Barlow is a really good player. I'm really happy for that pick. And, and a lot of people seem to really like that kid. Like, from what I saw of him, really popular, nice kid. Yeah. And, but I thought that trade they made, it was just a couple of months ago that the Winnipeg Jets put out a video about their ticket sales. Average attendance for the Jets at Canada Life Center is just over 14,000 fans per game this year, down from a pre-pandemic average of more than 15,000, which was close to a nightly sellout. This is a big change for the Jets. When the NHL came back to Winnipeg in 2011, season tickets sold out in 17 minutes. Now the Jets are doing this. From across the prairies, down to Portage Avenue, Polar Blue is our lifeblood. For the first time in 12 years, we are actively and publicly launching a broader-based campaign to reestablish our season ticket membership base. Trudor Sports and Entertainment says it lost 2,000 season ticket holders during the pandemic. True North says Winnipeg does have enough money to support an NHL team, but its new promotional video questions that without more paying fans. Was Winnipeg an NHL city? You better believe it. 
but it takes all of us. Join us. It wasn't very subtle. It was kind of like a. It tried to be subtle. It was not subtle, Elliot. But it had a bit of a sledgehammer feel to it. Like we've lost the team once. If you don't sell yeah. tickets, you know who knows what could happen. So I think the franchise is in a bit of a nervous place. I thought they had a really good week. The Barlow pick, and they made a really good trade for Dubois. When someone holds the hammer against you, I think there were a lot of people out there who were kind of saying you know what, we couldn't have made as good a deal in that situation. They were smart. They took advantage of the King's own cap situation, and they, they got good players. And they'll have to negotiate an extension with Velarde, who's in you know a really good place in terms of, hey, you just traded for me. Now you, you got to take care of me. And I think there's a bit to work over there with Ayafalo, who was very happy in, in Los Angeles. But I think they did as well as they could. And... I was asking some people I know in Winnipeg, what's the mood? What's the mood? And, you know, they said surprisingly good. They thought they were going to get their clock. I'm not talking about the Jets. I'm talking about the fans. I think the fans thought they were going to get their clocks cleaned in that deal. And they didn't. They made a good deal. And the Barlow pick was really popular. And I think this has been a really tough stretch for the Jets and their organization. And I don't know how they feel, but... The people I was talking to there, I was asking them, how does the city feel? And they, like I said, they said, not bad. So it's a good week for them. I think the other thing too here, Jeff, is the Hellebuck thing, there's a lot of goalie movement that's going to happen here, a lot. So the Hellebuck thing, I think that's kind of on the back burner right now. Hmm. And the Shifley thing, you know, I have to say this, I got a lot of mixed responses this week. I got some, they're going to trade them. I got some, there's nothing going on. I got some, they're going to try and convince him to stay. Hellebuck said he wants to win. Like, I wonder if they go back to him now and they say, Connor, look, we made this trade. It doesn't make us worse. We think this is a good trade for us. How do you feel? Mm -hmm. And does it make Hellebuck change his mind at all? You know, the Shifley one to me is really interesting. Like, I was sitting with a couple guys from a couple teams having a couple beers and we were having this big debate about Shifley. And what we were talking about is like, if you're Winnipeg, you had a one, two punch of Shifley Dubois. That's a really good one, two punch. Well, now Dubois is gone. And yes, you've got, you know, Kupari, you can play center, but he's more down the lineup. Well, now, if you trade Shifley, like, look at this draft we just had. The first four players were all centers. Like, one, two centers are hard guys to find. So if you're Winnipeg, you've traded Dubois, and now you're thinking about trading Shifley, all of a sudden, you've just traded two top two centers. Like, how are you replacing that? Mm -hmm. And I know there's a big debate there. Like, does Shifley need a change of scenery? The Jets need a change of scenery? Everything that's happened, is it better for everybody they move on? But these guys were fighting, and it was a really good debate about, like, after making a good trade, do you go to Shifley and say, hey, if we make you the captain, do you feel better about this? Can we get the full buy-in from you? And they'll have to sign them. So I am curious to see if they go to Hellebuck and Shifley at all and say, does this Dubois trade change your feeling? Or has everybody here already made their decision? But... I just wanted to mention this fascinating argument over beers because <laughs> all of the world's problems can be solved over a scotch or a beer. And if those of you who don't drink like Jeffrey, you're welcome to have a seltzer water and join us. You, you know what? It's so funny. You know, one of the things uh, a pet peeve of mine is, or one that I, I really don't understand the reference is when people say, yeah, you know what? I, I like hearing your show. It's just like, you know, you listen to a conversation at a bar. I can count on one hand the amount of like entertaining conversations I've ever heard at a bar. Like, when have you been part of like a really entertaining sports conversation? That's because you're a terrible a conversationalist. <laughs> yeah, that might be true too. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Okay, so let me. Oh, there is one other thing I wanted to mention. Okay. And first of all, great time in Nashville, great hosts. But also, I wanted to shout out the Anaheim Ducks for one reason. So, earlier this week, one of our previous podcast guests, Sudzi Maharaj, who's their goalie coach, they announced that he has pancreatic cancer. He's undergoing treatment, but, you know, they're hopeful and that he will continue to work. 
you know, the one thing I wanted to say was just in the process of making a few phone calls just to hear what was going on, I heard the ducks were unbelievably good in the way that you're supposed to be good. Yep. Like his contract was up and the diagnosis came in and they called him and they said, you don't have anything to worry about. Like we're going to take care of this. And that is the way the world is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I-, I was really happy to hear that. Good on the ducks. Absolutely. And uh, we're all in Sudsy's corner. He's one of the best. We've had him on the pod. So you've heard him here. If you've heard that podcast, he is hands down, flat out, full stop. One of the best people you will meet in hockey period, Elliot. And it's not just you and me saying that. Ask anybody about Sudsy. Great person. Universally loved and the whole hockey world is in his corner. Okay, Jeff. So the story about the PHF and the PWHPA. So this one picked up steam really quickly. And this one was really kept secret by uh, the Mark Walter Group, Billy Jean King Enterprises, and the Premier Hockey Federation. So I got off the plane from Nashville, and I got a text from someone saying, get your ears to the ground, something is happening tonight. And so I started making phone calls and and sending out texts. And there were two calls made, uh, one by the PWHPA union, and the other was hosted by Regan Carey, the commissioner of the Premier Hockey Federation, and her athletes. Both of them took place at 8 o'clock Eastern. And it was told to both groups um, by their leadership on the PWHPA side, Stan Kasten, and on the side of the PHF, the aforementioned Reagan Carey. And the upswing is that Billie Jean King Enterprises and the Mark Walter Group have purchased the Premier Hockey Federation. I don't know what the numbers involved here are. Perhaps by the time we get to the next podcast, after doing some digging, I can find out. But as was stressed to me, this is not a merger. This is one side buying out the other side. Now, one of the questions becomes what happens to the PHF athletes? And as they reported, A, their contracts have been voided. Uh, the contracts all have a, an at-will clause attached to them, uh, and they were dissolved. Uh, now, I do understand that there is some HR involved here that can provide some assistance to extend benefits and help them you know, gain some sort of financial consideration. I don't know the specifics of it, but I do think, Elliot, that there are some things in places here that'll help some of the athletes. I guess it'll lighten the blow a little bit, but as you can imagine, there are a lot of athletes that are really confused and really upset uh, about what has happened uh, here. And there are going to be plenty that are, just to be blunt, that are out of jobs because of this. Now, what will happen is those players will go into the player draft pool when we get to the draft for this new league. The name believed to be, I've reported, the Professional Women's Hockey League, the PWHL. When they have their draft, uh, these athletes will be part of the PWHPA, which will be the name of the Players' Union. And again, once again, I clarified this on Twitter. This is not a merger between the PWHPA or you know Mark Walter Group, Billy Jean King Enterprises, and the PHF. This is one side buying the other clearing way for one league. Now, when will we get more information on this? Mm. You know, one of the dates that I was told today, you know, you know, don't be surprised if we hear something around July 6th. I don't know if that's going to be a, a situation where we get the full complement and the full breadth of what this new league is going to look like with, you know, key dates and what the draft is going to look like, et cetera, for all this or the markets. And it's believed that there's going to be a, it'll be a six team league as I've reported before on hockey night, three Canadian teams and three American teams. I don't know that all those locations have been finalized, but I think we're looking at November training camps and a January start for this league. But this was, like, I'll be blunt, Elliot, this was a a monumental day for women's hockey. And as much as it is very upsetting uh, for a lot of women on the PHF side, and I understand it, and one of the things that I put out as well, you know, Agent Spencer Gillis, you know, was one of the key people that was looking to put together a, a group of athletes that would go on strike before the next PHF season to try to get rid of the at-will clauses in the contract. Obviously, that's been scuttled with the the, uh, the dissolving of, of the PHF. But this thing is now headed towards the one league that we've wondered about for a long time. 
This is what everybody on the PWHPA side of things has wanted. This is why a lot of the elite level athletes didn't join the Premier Hockey Federation and continue to do, you know, showcases and, you know, put together their events. This was, you know, as, as one person told me today, you know, one of the women I talked to said, you know, when they were told about this, they started crying right away because this has been so long that they've wanted this solution and this pathway cleared. And the, the other thing, because I know I, I know what you're thinking here, Elliot, what does this mean now that there's one league and how does this relate to the NHL? The National Hockey League has always said we're not going to get involved. We're not going to choose between one league or another, you know, get together or, you know, figure something out here at that point we'd be interested in getting involved now that that hurdle has been cleared. I'm guessing it'll be up to people like Stan Cast and Mark Walter to work out any type of arrangement if there's going to be one between this new league and the National Hockey League. So that's what we know on this Thursday at 1045 Eastern as we record this right now. By the time we get to another podcast, I'm sure I'll have, I'll have more to share. All right, good work, man. This is definitely something you know better than I do, and you were all over it. We're getting there. It's getting there. This slowly but surely. I know it's it's frustrating for a lot of people along the way, and it's as I mentioned, really disappointing for a lot of athletes um, that are going to be out of work, and I think disappointing for a lot of athletes that signed very large contracts mm-hmm. with the PHF, and and now those contracts have been voided, but. When you look at, you know, the future of women's hockey, it's hard not to see this as a, as a very positive day. We're going to hit a pause. When we come back, Elliot's conversation at the draft with Jason Bukala. Keep it here. Hey, you guys. I had an idea for a segment. One thing I really want to see is... Ah, uh, shit. Ah, Elliot, yet another start to another week. Now, other than the 32 Thoughts podcast, there's eh, not much else really to look forward to. Jeff, you are forgetting about Montana's Daily Deals. Their chicken wings are double-dusted in-house, cooked to a golden crispy finish, and they're half price on Mondays. Uh, Half price? Half price every Monday and sauced however you like them. Well then, head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar for half price wings every Monday. The only other thing exciting about Mondays. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. Okay, coming up here is Elliot's conversation with Jason Bukla, who was part of our draft coverage again. Had a great time with the entire crew. I thought Chuck Fletcher did a wonderful job. Sam Cosentino is always Sammy. More words per square second uh, than anybody else in hockey. Uh, Carolyn Cameron handling the interviews. Uh, Kyle Bukaskis uh, doing some great work with, with storytelling about a lot of the players and and david amber um you know just an an outstanding host and conducting and controlling um everything and directing everything in a very chaotic situation drafts are like that uh and our producer scott lennox uh who's really got this thing nailed and has for a long time great job scotty bukala as always our man books a big part of our coverage on thursday elliot sat down with jason bukala for a review of what we all saw in the past couple of days in nashville Jason, before we talk at all about anything that you reacted to from the draft, I have to ask you about an event that occurred this morning on day two of the draft. Yes. Our hotel is literally a four-minute walk from Bridgestone Arena, and you and Sam Cosentino had a car sent to the hotel to drive you to the arena. Listen. Please explain. Listen, it's 372 meters, according to my phone app. It's downhill on the way down, but it was 105 degrees this morning. <laughs> so I hear what you're I know where you're going with this, that it's just a bad look for us Svelte Media members, <laughs> especially when I like stretched and stuff in the morning before I left the hotel. <laughs> but yes, we, we got in a car service ordered by Sam Cosentino. I just tag along. I, you know, I, I do have to say, I heard Sam was responsible for this. 100%. You should point out you were in your suits. Yes. Yeah. I was dressed like this. It was too hot. People who work in production and tech, they call us poodles on air. That encourages them calling us poodles. Yeah, well, I would have been a puddle if I had to walk this morning. So. <laughs> All right. So two days of the draft is done. When someone says to you, 2023 draft, 
What's going to grab you? What's the first thing you're going to think of? First thing that's going to come to mind, reflection, no trades in the first round. Yeah. I, can't, I can't recall for as long as I've been in the game that they're... 2007, first time in 16 years. So first time in 16 years. Yeah. So that's the first thing. So I made the statement last night on air that the depth of the, the first 45 kids, let's say, on teams' lists... It was almost like a round and a half. Like it wasn't just the first round, if you will. It's like a first round and a half. That's how deep the quality went. So I didn't think people saw the value in making too many trades because they valued the list so much. That was my first takeaway. My second takeaway was talking about trades. And they're not going to be happy with me when I bring it up. But uh, having Simashev go to Arizona at six, I believe that that pick could have been made somewhere else in the first round for sure call it uh, Nashville's pick so okay, 15 okay so Trotsy as you know uh, and David were trying to trade up in the first round uh, and Arizona could have been a target I'm speculating here I'm sure they called everybody in the top 10 you know to say so that could have been a deal that could have been made there but conversely Arizona stuck to their guns they went off their list and their timeline Elliot is different right they've got so many prospects coming through they don't really need more draft capital like sooner than later Arizona is going to have all these guys drop on their lap they're not going to have room to sign them all Arizona to me is really interesting because they did something that a lot of people aren't doing right now one is Russians like everybody they drafted was over six feet tall I think San Jose did the same thing I think everyone they drafted was over six foot one you know to me that's the Vegas effect the Colorado effect but they went for height and they went for Russians at a time a lot of people are nervous about taking Russians so my theory on that is that they felt given their circumstance with how flush they are with the prospect pool that they could get out ahead of um, some of these other teams that maybe we're going to sit on a guy later and they might have valued him as much as, as Arizona did. But they're like, you know what, we've already got all these prospects coming. We're going to take a run at all these guys because we can. Yep. Because we can. But it's fascinating to me. Like today, you know, they go to Daniel Boot at 12. And, you know, so you got a six foot five guy who's uh, on projection could be. He could be a one in the NHL. He actually could be a one. I think he leans more two, mm-hmm. two F, uh, centerman. But you know he's got all kinds of skill. But there's a lot of projection there compared to the other people drafted around him. So, yeah, that was fascinating. I don't think they drafted a, a North American until they took the goalie from the U.S. team, yeah, Musser. I don't have it in front of me, but it feels like that. Yeah, anyways. yeah. They, they they had a very unique draft. Yeah, European heavy. And for our listeners. The timeline, as you know, is four years on those guys. Yes, you get them for four years. So CHL players, two years. USHL or NCAA players, four years or until their class is done. And overseas, four years. Like The great story about that is the last time the CBA was done, the full one, in 2013, the players who were negotiating told me that right before they got the deal done, one of the last things the NHL asked for was European players was two years at the time they asked for four. And did they give you the reason why they? I don't know why they waited on that until the last minute, but that was one of the things that definitely happened. Well, they get to play in those pro leagues over there and earn a pro earning in Europe, a lot of them, before they come over here. Like even the, the young guys that get drafted, they're like the Axel Sandin Pelicas. You know? yep. That kid played 114 hockey games this year. That's a lot of hockey, man. Like... You know, you could go on a full NHL run, win the Stanley Cup. You're not. You could go seven games and each round of the Stanley Cup. You're not even gonna get that many games. No, you're at 110. So 82 and 28. You know, he played the Helenka. He played the World Juniors. He played four nations, five nations, uh, World Under 18s, SHL games. Like it's crazy. You know, it's interesting. So I, I, I mean, maybe they. I'm just spitballing here, but they've got so many things going on in Europe, they, they might want to own those guys a little longer. Okay, so let's look at this. Let's let's go through the first round, okay? Leo Carlson, two, from Anaheim. Initial reaction. Not shocked. Not the least bit shocked. I was splitting hairs on Fantilli and Carlson at uh, two. Listening to Pat Verbeek talk to you about it, it made perfectly good sense to me anyways. Pat, you had us all guessing. What tipped the scales for Carlson? Well, we were really um, excited about uh, his creativity, his, his hockey sense. I think 
uh, there's a potential for him to really be a dominant player at both ends of the ice. Um, we liked him, especially seeing him at the World Championships play center, and so it kind of uh, um, became a tipping point for us. Do we put pencil him in for next season? Do we pencil him in next season? Well, you know what? We're going to kind of go through the process with um, with him. Um, we'll have to see. He's different than Fantilli. Fantilli plays more of a quick and fast game. Carlson is moving quicker than people believe he's moving. He's actually going, but he's more cerebral with it. You know, like uh, kind of like Barkoff in in uh, Florida. You don't know that he's moving as fast as he is, but he is. Where McKinnon, you know, he's darting. You know, somebody told me that Verbeek had a really visceral reaction when it was brought up internally that Carlson wasn't a good skater. Like he got really upset oh, yeah, about yeah, that. I can see that he's a good skater. There's no problem with skating. Yeah, he's agile. He's big, and so uh, not surprised. Fantastic kid, great character. So was Fantilli. So I'm splitting hairs there, but just a different player. That's all. Yep. You know, he he slows the game down a little bit more. Uh, Fantilli will drive people off their blue line, off the rush. Where Carlson might take on a check, yeah. absorb contact to make a play. Okay, so one guy's driving the play off because they have to respect the speed a little bit more. So he'll catch Gavin Brindley at Michigan coming late. Carlson will bring people to him, absorb contact, and make a play. They're just a little different, that's all. Did you think there was any chance, some combination of Bedard, Carlson, Fantilli-Smith wasn't going one, two, three, four? Uh, no. Okay. I thought that that was going to be it. Uh, I, I'll throw Leonard in that mix because I, I'll go down to five. I think that if, uh, if Smith was available at five, I think Montreal would have pivoted there and maybe went Smith instead of Reinbacher. And then we might be even having a different conversation in that regard when it came to six with uh, uh, Simashev uh, in Arizona. See, I'll be the first one to admit, I don't like giving draft grades. I don't see these kids. I know what a cement head I was at 18, and, and you can really change between 18 and 23. Like People say to me, who's your winner and loser of the draft? And I'm like, I haven't seen these guys play. And you know what? 95% of the people that argue about it on Twitter, they have no clue about it either. But you know, in Montreal, I saw the Canadians fans. They were upset. Like, Did that pick surprise you at all? No, it didn't surprise me at all. Again, I mean, so look what they did in the build-up to the draft. They made the deal with Colorado. Um, if you look at what they have coming through the prospect pool, so Newhook's coming in. You know, you got Owen Beck on the horizon. You've got uh, obviously what they already have there with Suzuki and Doc. They've got all these other pieces. So you and I both know because we'll do a trade deadline next year and we'll do it three, four years from now. And a guy like Reinbacher's name comes up. He's so valuable. Those big right shot, six foot four defensemen mm -hmm. who can produce better than secondary offense. There's some projection involved here. I'm not shocked by that pick. I'm not shocked at all by that pick. It, fits, it still fits a need. Was he the best player on my list available at that slot? No. I had. I would have went Leonard. After Smith was gone, like if I'm running the table for Sportsnet, I go to my next best player. I'm not, I'm not deviating from our list. It was Leonard for me. But Reinbacher was not far behind there. I love Leonard. I think that's a great pick for Washington. Cool. I think they're going to be really happy for a long time. I don't want to. We've talked about him a lot, so I don't talk about him anymore. Now that you know what you know about Mishkov in Philadelphia, yeah. So he comes to Philly. They hide it. They meet him here. I don't think initially they believed he really wanted to play for them, but he convinced them. That kind of subterfuge when you hear it. Like, what do you think? Well, the whole season was stealth on him, wasn't it? I yeah. think there's a lot of things that there's probably a documentary in the making somewhere down the line because I, I believe now, knowing what I know after that meeting especially, yeah. like they shut down the facility, you know? Like well, they, that, that was, or was, that, that, was that, that didn't so actually happen? I, okay. I, so I, I actually did that on Twitter because I had two people who sent me that tweet on Friday night. Okay. And they said to me that they shut down the facility so Mishkov could get in there. And I asked Breer that on air, and he laughed. And he said, that's not true. It's actually a wild coincidence. That was on the Sunday. Okay. But it actually happened that they did sneak him in on the Friday where nobody could see him. But there was a conspiracy theory that they shut it down that day to get him in there. But It's a well-earned conspiracy theory, I'll tell you that. Yeah, because a lot of people heard it. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people heard it. And there's been so many moving parts with the prospect. That wouldn't surprise us, yeah. right? So the whole thing there with Philly or any team that might come out of the woodwork later and say that they had a, 
uh, a meeting off-site with him. Um, none of it surprises me with that whole scenario there. I think the whole thing has uh, been uh, a finely tuned journey, well orchestrated by his management team. And I do believe this, though, Elliot, that they can tell me whatever they want to tell me. I think he only wanted to play for certain teams. I think he only wanted to go to certain cities. Philly's obviously one. Yeah, I agree with you. There's no question in my mind they did that. And you know what? Some people don't like that. You know, the one thing I'll say is when you're an agent and your client tells you to do something, sometimes you got to do things that people won't like, but that's your job. Like, I'm curious, when you were working for teams, how often did you have an agent say to your team, don't draft this guy. He doesn't want to come here. More than a handful of times. So it happens a bit. It happens. Now, would your GM ever say, screw it, I'm taking the key? Because I know some people are like, they don't dictate to us. We dictate to them. Like, what were your GMs like? Depended on the slot. It depended on the draft slot. In this scenario here, let me preface it by saying this. Depending on where you are in the cycle of your big team, okay, and then depending on where you are with your depth chart, your depth chart, okay, now your GM might be in that mode. It's like, honestly, it's the NHL. You're not going to tell me what to do. Your GM has two years left on his deal. You've got middling depth. You're sort of a playoff team. That changes the scope of that conversation altogether. Like, strategy has to change. Mm -hmm. He's not going to be happy about it, or she. You know, they're not going to be happy about it. Because nobody at that highest level in the world of this game wants any 18-year-old kid and his management team to dictate, you know. 100%. Like, come on. You should just be foaming at the mouth to come and play, right? But it happens. It happens. I, I find that it happens more with even over here with North Americans, with kids that are going to college. Really? Yeah. They're lukewarm about the selection process that, you know, I'm happy to be drafted, but you get the feeling pretty early in, in, in the process, if you will, that, yeah, you're happy, but I can tell you're not totally happy. We went through that with Hyman. When Hyman had that great year in uh, Michigan, yeah. his senior year, he walked us to water right till March saying he was going to be a Florida Panther. And at the end of the day, he had no intentions of being a Florida Panther. On this podcast, you're not allowed to say anything negative about Zach Hyman, just so you know. Well, I, lo- just- I love, I, I like Zach Hyman as a player. I'm just giving you an example. You set it up. I'm just following the lead. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask you was, I really like something you said in the NHL Network on, on day two, and you talked about Carolina. Like, teams have a type. And you, and you said Carolina was drafting to type. Was there any team that you saw thought of in the, over these two days you said they did not draft a type. Honestly, I thought that Toronto kind of were in the muddy middle compared to what they've done in the past. Well, I think Tree Living wants some more size there. I think. Well, not only size, but like they want to be meaner. Right. I, I think he thinks they're too docile. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that. So that was one. But full disclosure, I was kind of curious anyway. So you're you're monitoring it a little bit differently, yeah. right? I was a little bit surprised. So Trotsky's coming into Nashville, and if you start to look at who they selected, they selected um, a lot of guys, 5'11", like three or four guys, 5'11", or shorter, that are, are burners or like Kalen Lynn type guys that are, you know, they play like their hair's on fire. They're really hard to play against. And I thought that was a little bit interesting, you know, because their division specifically seems to be, you know, you have to have some beef in that division to come out of it, it yeah. seems. But clearly there's a little bit of a changing of the guard there with size and speed that, uh, that that obviously Barry wants to have that in the group. Okay, couple more for you. Number one, player who went late that you said, actually, I know late in the first round, you like the Blues pick who went 25th, the captain of the Swedish team. Oh, I love him, Stenberg. Stenberg. I, Stenberg. I, I remember you were talking with him, but maybe somebody who went late that you said, boy, what a great late pick. Can I check my notes for a sec here? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about Stenberg, though, for a second. Yeah, yeah, here. go ahead. Like, I had, him, I had him as a top 10 guy for me, and well, I got the next guy after this. Um, but Stenberg, I had him as a top 10 guy. He's been the captain of that Swedish team. Great weekend for, uh, for the I country of Sweden. Really good night. For a great couple of days, right? So, But this kid rips pucks from all over the place, um, plays the game the right way, three-zone heavy. He's kind of built like a fire hydrant. He's really hard to play against. Plays it. He's like quick to small areas, and he's just hard to knock off pucks. I thought Nick Lardis was going to go a lot sooner. So he, I, I remember he went 67th, I think, to Chicago. Yeah. And I think it was Sam who said, wait a sec, like people are looking at this going, Nick Lardis was still available? Uh, so when you say his name, I, I think of that. So 
Chicago, obviously Bedard. But then they went Oliver Moore yeah. out of the program. He's a burner. Yeah. And then you go to Nick Lardis, who's an elite skater. Like his, honestly, he's the Elvis Stoiko of this draft class. He's a beautiful skater. But he's a perimeter guy for the most part. Plays the wing, but if you put him with somebody who's a play driver in the middle, can extend plays, he's going to go to work. So Lardis, I had him as like between 28 and 34 in my mind, so that's a guy that stands out for me. All right, next year. We're all talking about next year. Yeah, Macklin Celebrini. He's the, he, so this year was the year of Bedard, next year's the year of Celebrini. The Iserman kid's really good too, out of the U.S. You know, you know who's going to like that, even though he never listens to this podcast, is, is Dave Amber. Really? Yeah, Dave Amber never listens to the podcast because he tells me I, I hear too much of you normally, so I can't listen right, to the podcast. Right, yeah. But he saw Cole Eiserman play probably about six, seven years ago, and he is not like he talks about Cole Eiserman more than he talks about his own wife and kids. <laughs> he says, "Watch out for this Eiserman kid." He's really good. Yeah, he wants the puck all the time. He's an alpha dog. Like he wants it. Sometimes, like he had the. You know, I had the beaver tail going a little bit at the under 18s. You know, yeah. one of those guys yeah, that really yeah, wants yeah. it all the time. Mm-hmm. But he's elite. Macklin Celebrini would have been a top 10 pick in this draft. Like, he's that good. And this is a great draft. So, and where does Eiserman play? Uh, so, he is at the 17s this year, mm-hmm. but played for the 18s at the Worlds. So, he's at the U.S. National Team Development Program. And Celebrini was at the Chicago Steel this year. Is he there next year? Uh, as far as I know, as I sit here right now, yeah. that's where he's going to be, yes. Okay. The other kid that's on the horizon, though. The Hudson uh, draft pick uh, in in Montreal. He's got a brother, he's right? Got a brother, yeah. and oh, he's a heck of a player too. And where's he playing? He's at the program, U.S. Yeah. national team, so he's going to be at the U18s. But I believe he's also going to be you uh, when he's done there. Now his brother will be in Montreal by yeah. then, but he's another one. All right, thanks very much, my man. How do you feel? Well, I feel like I've been talking to you too much this week, so I'm glad <laughs> to get out of here. <laughs> you got a car taking you back to the hotel? Yeah, it's uphill all the way. <laughs> Okay, that's Elliot alongside Jason Bukala. It's been an amazing week in Music City. And a big thank you to the Nashville Predators, uh, to Kevin Wilson. I mean, this Nashville Predators organization, from a hospitality point of view and ease of working with point of view, I mean, Nashville is a gold standard. Great people there, and they have since they joined the National Hockey League. That's been a a constant with the Nashville Predators. So it's been a great week in Music City. So we're going to leave you with another local artist. Mike Floss was born in Chicago, but his family moved to Nashville soon after he was born. Floss was surrounded by music from an early age, thanks to his father, a respected jazz trumpeter. From his 2021 record, Oasis, here's Mike Floss with Local Satisfaction. 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy. I know I'm just a brown, sipping smile, spilling public school child. Down from Tennessee, I meant to be the man. Look at me now. Tap my body, mama say this she don't like it, but oh well. Keep some Saint Laurent cologne on top of ink. I like the smell. Ayy, dressing like a track coach. On the drums, I'm Max Roach. Trying to milk the game for everything. These elegant toast. Zoning out to Mad Max Kroger Swiper.